0: welcome to beyond the call the podcast for all law enforcement professionals and all those who support them sponsored by the national police credit union we mean police business i'm your co-host ken bader with co-host casey smith welcoming you to beyond the call on the scene a special episode at the 16th Annual Police Officers Credit Union Conference. I had the distinct pleasure to lead a panel of experts to discuss about issues and solutions for those issues for law enforcement today. My guests on the panel were Patrick Burke, the Executive Director of the DC Police Foundation, Danny Gregg, the Chairperson of Police Federal Credit Union in Maryland, and Vince Levian, a former guest on Beyond the Call, and one of the board of trustees on the Silver Shield Foundation. Let's listen in. Absolutely. So let us start our law enforcement <laughs> panel. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the fine folks that I have to my left here. Uh, the first gentleman is Patrick Burke. Patrick is the executive director of the Washington DC Police Foundation who also served a a term as the U.S. Marshal for the District of Columbia as well as 27 years with the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, We also have Danny Gregg. Nobody knows Danny. (laughs) (laughs) Danny Gregg is the Chairman of the Board of the Police Federal Credit Union and has obviously been a huge supporter of the POCUA for several years. Uh, He also served for over 23 years with the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. And last but not least, Vince Levian. and we know Vince uh, obviously from the Finest Service Organization, but what you may not know is he's a board member for the Silver Shield Foundation and has served for this and many other law enforcement organizations for years. He's also the son of a very well-decorated NYPD detective. Uh, Great story about that. If you haven't seen that episode of Beyond the Call with with Vince, I uh, uh, definitely encourage you to do that because it's an interesting story. Uh, So he definitely knows what it's like to grow up in a law enforcement family. So give these gentlemen a round of applause. I'm going to delve right into this again given that our uh, our theme is on soundness my first question is to say that the nature of the law enforcement profession has changed in recent years would would certainly be an understatement Uh, police officers have tough jobs Uh, how has life changed for law enforcement families and what does that mean for businesses that specifically serve police officers Patrick I'll start with you and thank you for having me today. When you think
1: about law enforcement, I think there's a lot of the same challenges we've always had. You're working tough shifts. um, The divorce rates are high. uh, There's stress with the job. And now we're starting to look at PTSD a lot more in police officers and the exposure to trauma uh, because of the many things that officers see, especially in places like New York and DC and the violence that we see on a regular basis. I think one of the challenges we face with our officers now is young people are transient. I know with DC officers we have a challenge, especially in this region, everybody's hiring police officers. The standards are tougher as it grows into more of a profession. Uh, We're seeing more educated people come into the profession, but if they don't like the schedules, the work hours, they're leaving for other jobs, we have to look at incentives to keep them here. A lot of officers are coming in. I think uh, last year 77% of our new recruits had at least a four-year degree but we've got folks coming out with law degrees master's degrees if they don't like it and sometimes they don't want to go to patrol which everybody does out of the academy they're going to move on to something else so we're looking at loan forgiveness uh... and other incentives to keep them here in the city or with our departments or else they're jumping across the bridge to places like arlington which has taken some of our officers because of better shifts and uh... you know some better opportunities that they have over there so it's something that we're always looking at
2: and uh, a challenge that we continue to face. First off, I just want to, you know, being here with Danny and Patrick, I have to say it's an honor to be sitting with both of you. You know, you're both legends and uh, your background and what you've done for law enforcement. So thank you. Uh, I have to say, in my work and work with the Silver Shield Foundation, I would say about three and a half, four years ago, we had two police officers that were assassinated sitting in their patrol car, Officer Lou and Ramos. I, I can say firsthand, you know, having Phil sitting here in the circle of the NYPD, that kind of changed the narrative, at least in New York for the NYPD, and a lot of law enforcement of how you would have to think of dealing with law enforcement every day. You know, for me, the Civil Shield Foundation, you know, we respond immediately for the families in need, and to see those two officers getting assassinated, literally just sitting in their, their patrol car, changed the way that police think. I think a lot of it changed the way that the foundations have thought about how to be uh, more proactive in helping the families in their time of need. Uh, a lot of the grief counseling you know, that, that we do for the families, for the widows, for the children, um, it's always dramatic when a police officer gets killed in line of duty, but I think, unfortunately, I personally see in, in my years, my dad served in NYPD for 45 years, from 69 to, you know, um, 89, then another 24 years in law enforcement. I've seen a narrative of enforcement has changed in our country that I, I never remember growing up, you know, police officers being assassinated. You know, like, it's been happening uh, after the other. How do, you, how do you respond to that? For me, the NYPD you see, Phil knows this, Our police cars now actually have bulletproof windows in the front of their cars so that would not happen again. Uh, they're more proactive that they have devices uh, with uh, their cell phones now. Every NYPD officer has a cell phone that they can get rapid response information. So I think the technology has changed and how you have to react to make sure that the police officers are protected. Thank you. you. Let's thank
3: Vinny. He does a lot for the police. Too often we think about the stresses of law enforcement, and there are many. I've been in Pat, and all of us have been there. But I think too often we forget that stress also is embedded in the family. spouse, the children. So I think anything we can do early on in that career to engage the family is important. I know the police (coughs) foundation has I a family day where we invite the families out and it's just a fun day for the families to get together, get to see what the law enforcement does, uh, the type of equipment, the the interactions with, with what's occurring in the law enforcement community. So I think it's important that we engage the family early. Too often we wait until there is a tragedy. And then we're reaching out to the family we need to bring them in early in the process certainly from a financial perspective it's important that we understand that oftentimes it's not the police officer who controls the purse strings it's the spouse and the reason is because of the unpredictability of the profession the hours you work uh, the demands placed on you you're not always the one managing the finances so it's important that we get the family in early to understand that we're there to help not just the police officer but the entire family and i could go on and on about that but I think it's important that we understand that police federal credit unions serve police officers, but we also serve families, and it's important that we make that known early on in the process. I think, like Patrick said, I go to the police academy and I see these young recruits coming on, and I'm inspired by what I see. There's a lot of education there, a lot of military experience, a lot of passion for what they're doing. But this, in many cases, may only be a stepping stone because as I've gone to some of these classes, I see Arlington at the classes as well, and they're recruiting our recruits as they're graduating. So there is a lot of competition for this, so we need to, we need to be mindful of that, is that that Washington, D.C., for us, is a training ground. We find often, through I know when I was on back in the police department, our attrition rate was running about 38 to 40 monthly. So we would train them, and no food sooner do we train them, they're turning out. So, we have to find incentives, as Patrick said, to keep them engaged. Through education, uh, tuition assistance uh, uh, is, is important, uh, college debt. How do we help them manage that college debt? One of the, the things that Patrick and I talked about not long ago was that at the police academy, when they surveyed some of the recruits, they asked them, what is your, your number one challenge? Is managing money, how to manage debt. So you can see how important we are to them. But we got to get there early, we got to get in the academy, we have to engage them early because when they do come in, from our perspective, they're coming in from all over the country. We're not getting locals, we're getting them from all over the country. So when they come into this environment here, everything is new to them. The housing, the transportation, the, the culture of the communities. And so it's early intervention, if you will, is what's going to help us. Make sure that that police officer and his family gets the
0: type of services they deserve. Well, I'll let you hold on to the mic. Uh, One reason is because what you said about families segues perfectly into the next question. And number two, I think that it's going to be difficult for me to pry the mic from you anyway. Uh, So, uh, like you alluded to, unfortunately, financial troubles are all too common in law enforcement. Um, I've personally seen it through the show and through other avenues in, in many different cities. Uh, is there a number one piece of advice that you give to law enforcement families as to how they can improve their management of money?
3: Needs over wants. Uh, we see that often in law enforcement. They'll have a, uh, a special detail where these officers will get deployed, can make enormous amounts of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars in overtime and the like. So what they end up doing, they buying the boats and the second home and the like, and suddenly the overtime is gone and how do they manage that debt that they've incurred. So I think it's important for for us to emphasize to them, needs over wants, a budget. I'm a firm believer in a budget. If you put a budget together and you try, if nothing else, it's a tool, it's a discipline to help you stay on the course. But most importantly, and I hear this often from excuses for police officers, well, my wife did it or my spouse did it. I didn't know know where your money's going at all times. You may not manage the money, but know where it's going and where it's coming from because that's what gets you into trouble. Is oftentimes you find out that I didn't know that these credit cards had gotten to this level or this debt had gotten to this level. So budgeting, uh, know where your money is coming and going, and, and most importantly is um, buy what you need, surplus money, look at the ones, but don't let that reverse itself because too often people get themselves into trouble because they want to keep up with the Joneses. My neighbor got a vote so I'm going to get a vote. You really don't want to do that. Uh, I mean this kind of profession, uh, the, the hours are unpredictable, even the salaries can be up. You have a fixed salary but oftentimes you can be making tens of thousands of dollars in overtime and you can't rely on that as, as a, a fixed income. And too often I think they do. So we got to help them understand
2: to avoid those things. So, One of the things uh, we did, the civil Shield Foundation, just give you some background, it was started by George Steinbrenner in the 80s, over 35 years ago. He was at a, uh, a funeral of a police officer and he asked, who, Who's taking care of those children? The NYPD says, Well, we have the line duty death, we do X, Y, and D. So, you know, who's taking care of the kids' colleges? So George basically got together with a bunch of his friends and started this foundation to do scholarship funds for the children, police officers, killing them on duty. But we do NYPD, Nassau County Police, Suffolk Police, New York State Police, uh, New Jersey State Police in the 75 mile radius around New York. And then we also do firefighters, FDNY, and then the 75 mile radius around New York. So one of the things we started to do years ago is we pay the colleges. So if um, that child wants to go to school, we'll have the money ready in a fund. And when they're ready to go to school, we pay the college the reason why we do that is we found years ago that we give the money to the families and you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, there's no college fund. So what we've really tried to do and it's worked very effectively for all these families is we have the funds set aside. We have it a lot of times 15, 20 years down the road. We have, unfortunately, about 700 children in our program right now. All the 9-11 families and then all the other families of uh, police officers and firefighters, going line of duty. And every year, what we do now is, all right, if you want to go to St. John's or Notre Dame or Harvard, we'll call that college and we'll pay that college uh, financially. So we we make sure that the children know that when they're ready to go to college, we have the money set aside. That's something we've seen. It's been very effective even for the families, the widows of having financial planning and having reserve aside that, you know, you can't touch this money for 15, 20 years. An IRA that you can't touch until 50, 55. It helps the families and set uh, financial um, statement for them. So five, 10, 15 years down the road, when the kids are getting to college age and uh, the families need the money, they have it. Thanks for sharing that, Vincent. I'm glad to
1: say that at DC, we have a similar operation. There's a, a charity that's now 52 years old, HEROES, which is an acronym for Honor Every Respectable Officer's Eternal Sacrifice that takes care of college tuitions for any police officer, firefighter, first responder that dies in the line of duty in the D.C. region, started by a local businessman, kind of with the same uh, mindset that we need to take care of our people. So I think, getting back to uh, some of the points Danny was talking about, the number one thing we have to do is educate our officers. I came, uh, you know, back in 1989 to D.C. out of graduate school in Buffalo. the department's paid for two additional master's degree. I'm an idiot when it comes to money. No, my parents are great people. I love my parents to death. They never taught me how to manage money. You know, I was working at 12 years old with my little three little brothers with the paper route, but I never knew how to manage money. Uh, rule number one is marry a spa- smart wife, uh, partner, which I do and Danny, the reason. Um, You know, it wasn't my wife managing the money because of my hours, it's because I'm an idiot, once again. Unfortunately, she did that. But, you know, with with my four kids now, she's really great about, you know, teaching the kids how to establish credit. Um, So when we think about police officers, I'll say this today and now, and the D.C. guys will agree with me. If you go to one of the seven police districts in D.C., you're still going to see... BMWs Mercedes uh, all the nice cars that I've never owned I'm driving my you know 2008 Jeep Liberty um, But you know what that's that's what we do and, and I want to give uh, some some kudos to Danny because a few things that we've done here too is with our police academy now we do financial literacy training to teach, teach our officers how to establish good credit and when you think about it from a, a police perspective too if you have officers that are experiencing financial difficulty, they're more likely to do put themselves in a situation where they make a bad decision. So, from an internal affairs perspective, that's something we look at from the recruiting perspective. If people have bad credit, you know, we're going to take a look at that. Should they be hired as police officers because they have a greater proclivity to make a bad decision? So, beyond the financial training in the academy, uh, one of the things we worked in helped us set up last year was a uh, at our tactical training center, an actual location where. Our recruit officers could go in and our cadets, which are 18 to 24 year old aspiring police officers, could go through a facility with the local credit unions and they could go to the different stations. Here's what your rent costs. Here's what a car costs. You want cable TV? Here's your insurance. Oh, you want the BMW instead of the 2008 Cheap Liberty? Here's what it all costs. And at the end you spin the wheel to see what crap life gives you or good things like gives you like your refrigerator broken down and people can't pay for that and that puts an officer in a situation once again where you know they think about should I buy that $60,000 car the $500 pair of sneakers or should I make a more prudent decision so those are a few of the things that we're working on as Danny said too we've got a lot of officers that come from around the country around the world Um, we had officers coming to DC that didn't have a place to stay so one of the things we did again working with Danny Put a credit union branch at the academy. Guys come here; they don't have. They just graduated from college. They've got 20 grand in debt or more. Um, they don't have a place to stay. They need some money to start to get started, or else they're going back home to New York or wherever they came from. So that's been a great uh, incentive to get them on their feet till they can find a friend or a good living situation. And housing incentives are another thing that we're looking at as well.
0: Now, a word from our sponsor, the National Police Credit Union. The National Police Credit Union is pleased to introduce killed in line of duty loan protection, a special debt cancellation benefit created exclusively for active full-time law enforcement officers. Available for multiple loans at no cost to the borrower, this complimentary benefit will cancel up to $850,000 of the outstanding balance of one or more loans should the unthinkable happen to an officer due to a line of duty incident. Eligible credit union loans includes mortgages and home equity loans, auto, motorcycle, and boat loans, signature loans, uniform loans, tuition loans, student loan consolidations, and credit cards. Killed in the line of duty loan protection is available only for the qualifying officer and the protection may not be purchased outright. This debt cancellation benefit only applies in the case of death. Please see Loan Addendum upon loan closing for more details. And for more information, please go to nationalpolicecu.com. The answer to to some of the issues that are facing society today uh, may very well be solved by creating better engagement and connection between law enforcement and the community at large. That's certainly something that that I believe in. Um, From that standpoint, do do you agree, and if so, from a credit union standpoint, what might all of these organizations do uh, to help
2: make that connection? I'm going to start with Vinny this time. So I have to say, uh, in the 80s, there was a historic police officer, Steve McDonald, that was shot in Central Park. His wife, Patty McDonald, was pregnant in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania State Police basically raced her up to New York and they didn't think Steve was going to live. And Steve had a choice in life, right? He was gonna be bad and angry and upset, or he was gonna get back, and he decided to change his life for the better. Instead of having that anger and that hatred that everybody has in that time, of just a tragic, tragic issue, he actually went and forgave the person that shot him. Now Steve, for 30 years, and Phil knows this, and you know, my dad was on the job, and I remember as a kid meeting Steve McDonald, and you saw this guy in a wheelchair, He couldn't walk. He was literally so peaceful and so loving. And he would go to precincts roll call, and he would go into every single part of New York City, New York State and the country, and he would just talk about forgiveness. And this is somebody that, if anybody was going to have hatred, his wife was pregnant, his son Conor McDonald is now one of New York's finest, works in the NYPD. And when you meet this family, when you meet Patty and McDonald, what she went through. Can you imagine being pregnant, your, your husband getting shot, almost killed, cannot walk the rest of his life, and the entire family put their energy in their positive way to focus on forgiveness. And for 30 years of his life, you would see Steve McDonald going to roll calls, going to fire departments, going to communities, and there was a racial riot in Crown Heights or Bed-Stuy. It would be Steve McDonald in his wheelchair saying, peace. You know, let's talk about forgiveness. And I have to say, one man, I don't think Phil, anybody transcends, you know, the work that he did to have, you know, police officers just think for a minute like if he could forgive. And he lived a life that, you know, it would take him 45 minutes to get up in the morning to just get dressed. And he had the aides and the nurses, and you talk about ADA uh, compliant. They had to reconstruct his entire home with the ramps and the bathrooms. When he would travel to the NYPD, they would have to figure out a way how they would have to get him in and out. Sometimes they would have to carry him up the stairs. Because back then in the 80s and 90s, there was no ADA compliant. It was literally, you know, pick him up and get him into the station house because he was going to speak at local. And I think that's one thing to me, you know, as a son, as a police officer, what Steve McDonald and what you see his son and his wife portray is, you know, it's, 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 listen, I deal with it in my own life. It's very hard to forgive somebody sometimes. Specifically when you're dealing with those issues and you deal with a police officer getting killed in line of duty and you see what their family goes through. But I think if, if in society in life if we had more of that, more of the Steve McDonald's role, I think we'd all be in a better place. Well, I don't
3: think police community relations is a good concept been around for almost 48 years now in law enforcement in one way or the other and i can tell you we've been practicing community relations from out of the academy i think what's happening today is a little different than what we've seen over the years today the community relations go just beyond the police and certain elements of our community it goes into the school system to the churches it goes into the politicians the elected officials the prosecutor's office you see today that politicians elected officials seem to jump to conclusions where they have the entire circumstances. That imposes so much stress on the police officer and their families because they're taking the brunt of that. And so community relations to me is larger than just the community you serve. It's what are these other elements in our community teaching? Nobody comes out of the womb anti-police. That's a learned behavior. It's taught throughout the years and experience We have a lot to do to ensure that our uh, delivery of justice is fair and equal, uh, But also that goes to the other side of the formula, and that is our churches need to play a role. Our schools need to play a role. Our politicians need to stop trying to get on their soapbox and take sides. Um, but I think community relations is not new. It's, a, it's, it's been around forever. Uh, we have, in D.C., fortunately, we have a pretty strong support from our community. I think it's important to remember that it's only a small minority of the community that might be anti-police. The overwhelming majority of the population supports police in what they do. But it's when you have the elected officials and you have some of these uh, elected prosecutors that seem to think that their job is to advocate for one side or the other instead of remaining neutral and hearing the facts, that creates so much more stress on our efforts, when I say our, the police department, to develop and further strengthen those community relations. So it's beyond just the police and the community they serve. It's, it goes into other elements of our society as well. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I knew, that, uh, I, last year I attended Pat's uh, award ceremony. And they do an award ceremony every year where they invite uh, police officers, where they actually have a committee that selects police officers who have done extraordinary things in our city, and these businesses come in and they make money and they donate and they show their support. When you go to one of those events and you look around the room and you see the power brokers in the room, that's your support right there. They're there, they're just silent. It's the, 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 that's the type of support that's out there. So we should never be confused that the community is against us. There, 98% of it's behind us, 100%. It's just those few elements out there that seem to advocate for that type of dissension between the police and the community me, it's nothing new. Thanks Dan and I, I think today a lot of people would say man
1: things have changed, people are anti-police. You know what, if I could do it all again, I absolutely would be a cop again today. If any of my four kids who will all go to college or graduated from college wanted to be a DC cop, I would absolutely <laughs> encourage them to do it. Uh, you, you get paid to help people. Is that pretty great? You actually get paid to help people? it's a beautiful thing but I when you think about you know police community relations and, and we just had police week here in DC so we've had you know event after event and you hear about the term the thin blue line but I always like one of my former chiefs and a mentor to me Charles Ramsey who's also a commissioner of Philadelphia when he left DC he used the term of you know rather than a thin blue line concept, kind of a, a tapestry where that blue lines woven into everything because when you think back to the history of policing in Sir Robert Peel in England. It's really that basic concept, again, and there are Peel's principles of policing, but the police are the people, the people are the police. The police are the people, the people are the police. Really, that's what we are. It's not a community service unit. You guys, that's our community service table over there. We kick ass on this side. That's that's not how role, it rolls. We're all, everything we do every single day, We're all, community policing's built into that. And I tell you, one of the things that we need to do better You know, when you think about American law enforcement, 18,000 roughly police departments in the country, 75% have fewer than 50 officers. What happens in Los Angeles in 1992 impacts DC cops and New York cops today. Anything that happens around the country impacts, or around the world for that matter, impacts police. There are going to be cases where police do bad things, so we have to work every single day to build respect and trust in our communities. We have to have police departments that represent our communities. We can't have 98% white male police departments serving minority communities. Then we're occupying force in that matter, and that's happened in places throughout the country. We have to recognize that there has been historic racism in policing, and we need to do better, we are doing better. 22% of our officers in DC are females. They do a great job. I think there's something to learn, You know, when I look back at myself as, you know, a rugby guy coming out of college and if somebody um, I can't square on TV said something to to me, I kind of went macho a little bit and I'm going to win this battle. I've got my OC and my ASP and I'm going to win this battle. I think I'm seeing, you know, with, with some of our female officers they're more likely to to talk to people. And I, you know, as a former bartender, I always say, it's probably the best thing I had more than any education, because I don't like to get punched in the face. (laughs) If you can talk to people and de-escalate those situations, we're gonna do much better. And I think we are doing a lot of good things in the country and local.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, that you're doing a lot of good things. Um, I'm seeing a lot more programs along the lines of what you're talking about around the country. Um, coupled with, you know, I think that you know, the the new police officer out there, and I'm not a police officer, so I'm just speaking from vicarious experience, um, seem to be more apt to, to have that conversation too de-escalate rather than go to to some type of confrontation, uh, which is much better for the police officer in the long run anyway. Uh, Each of you have a number of years of experience of working with police officers in one way, shape, or form. Uh, What's been the most fulfilling aspect of your work uh, with multiple law enforcement organizations? I'll start here with Patrick. Sure, I think the most rewarding
1: thing is just knowing the great work that officers are doing every single day and being able to, to help them out. I said, you know, you talk about the, the ranks that you uh, serve as a sergeant, you're hands on what the officers on the street. Uh, I always thought a lieutenant was a great position because you're low enough where the chiefs don't really mess with you too much, which <laughs> can, can make a difference on the street. But there's so many officers doing wonderful things. I think the key thing is to realize the humanity of officers. You know. Obviously, we've all got a job to do, but you got to take care of your people to some extent, too. There's so many people taking care of a relative, a mom or dad, that's living at their home with them. They've got a child with a disability. They've got kids at home that need daycare. So many of our police officers, they're married to each other. Who's watching the kids? Are working? Different. I was just uplifting weights yesterday at the 2nd District. There are two couples in the weight room uh, waiting for a shift change. They've got the kids in the weight room. That's the, They're working the different shifts. And and turn them over to each other. So you got to take care of your people and I think that's the the best thing that we can do as supervisors. And and I, I mentioned PTSD in my opening comments and I don't think we realize so much, until sometimes you retire even, how much you're impacted by trauma. In the late 80s, early 90s when we had it, when a lot of us were here, a crack epidemic in D.C. I think in 1991, we had 492 homicides in D.C. It was a city of unsolved murders, the nation's murder capital. It was a tough time. It was embarrassing to be a cop in D.C. at the time. We were broke. We were taking cars off, off used cars if we could find them, or taking tires off of used cars just to keep our vehicles in operation. But I remember, you know, once again, as a guy at this point, I'm working in Anacostia, tough neighborhood in the seventh district. I'm just a year and a half out of grad school, never saw anything in my life. And, and you realize I had a, a situation. I was at a shooting at about two in the morning in a neighborhood called Berry Farms. Summer day. It's 90 plus degrees at two in the morning. Hundreds of people are out because nobody's got air conditioning in their houses. But I remember my friend Matt Klein, who's now the head of uh, internal affairs for CDP. He and I going to the shooting. It was a 14 year old kid. He was duct taped feet behind uh, feet behind him. Hands wrapped behind his back in duct tape, and somebody put a shotgun in his mouth, and his head was gone. So there's cats. Um, be- hopefully, this is right before dinner, so this will help with the diet. A <laughs> couple of hours. Couple so of there, hours. there's you know a dozen cats out there, as you guys know, you know from the alleys licking his brains off the wall, and Matt and I are there. Uh, licking, it was a nutty buddy ice cream cone, I was eating my nutty buddy, (laughs) Matt was eating his nutty buddy, and you look up and there's, from Anacostia, you have the most beautiful views of the nation's capital. The capitol building is right there, glowing in its majesty, and I just remember to say, this is is messed up, that this is, you know, this is a 14 year old kid that somebody loves, that's somebody's child, that's somebody's brother, that's laying here in this condition, And, and we're here and that's a norm for us. That's a regular night for us um, in the city. And I, I you know, I vow to myself, and I, I would still say to this young officers, never realize or never forget that there are humans involved in this. That somebody's loved one is behind that yellow tape trying to get to their kid or somebody they love. And we can never forget, no matter what happened in the situation, there's bad people out there, but there's human beings involved. And we have to remember the trauma that police officers experience
2: every day. I have to say, for me, I think the biggest impact is uh, the effect that police officers have when they're dealing with something traumatic, uh, dealing with a shooting, dealing with one of their former brothers or sisters gets killed in line of duty. I've seen it firsthand uh, dealing with uh, the family members and dealing with the partners. Uh, me and you know, Keith Stone, that's here for the Finest photo Crane, and Phil, we've been dealing with a situation that there was. Uh, two partners together. One partner jumped in front of the other partner and saved his life. Um, that partner had very serious uh, effects of that. Um, police officer got killed on line duty, two young ch- children, and every day we see we see that, that officer get up and put on his uniform and continue to go to work. But I, I always see the other effects, you know, the psychological effects, the other effects. You know, I was the son of a police officer I saw that effect that it had in my dad. You know, my dad was in Vietnam, was a Marine, my brother's a colonel now in the army and I do what I do. But I, I, I always see those different effects of how we can go and help those officers. And I have to say all of you that are here today, you see somebody and you have a direct effect that you can help somebody. And sometimes they don't they don't want to go to the department, because if they go to the department and they speak to the at the department, that's gonna change their job. But there's other ways that they can get help. And it's okay. If you have an issue and you need to speak to somebody, that's okay. I know, you know, with my, with my old man, you know, and, and our cops are, they would never want to go and speak because you, you're always you're always helping everybody, right? And when something happens and when somebody, you know, that you love and somebody that's saving your life gets killed in line of duty, now you have to get up. I mean, that that grief and that, that follows them the rest of their life. And they never forget that. And I see it firsthand when we try and help them. In different ways and just socially going out and having a drink or going to a baseball game that's something that they live with every single day of their life why am I here why is my partner you know, not and and that effect and I've always tried to say you can make a difference you can make a difference in, in, in their life and other people's lives but you can do it below, below the radar you can do it by saying you know let me help you let me get your help you know in a way that you'll help them in ways that you know they will always you know not only remember, but it's something that they will help in other people and helping other officers. Well, I can say
3: this for a bachelor. he wanted to be a policeman, he went to the right district, the 7th Police District. If you want to learn anything about policing, you start there. It is by far one of those organizations where you're going to learn every aspect of police work in the 7th District. I served down there on a detail from time to time, I served in the 6th District, the 5th the 4th. So I've been in many of the districts in different capacities. But I can tell you that I'm good at compartmentalizing my emotions. You see a lot of stuff, about it, as Patrick said, and nothing that Patrick said, all of us hasn't seen one time or another. Uh, you see that, but you learn to compartmentalize that because you have to go on. You have to understand. You have a job to the community. You have a job to your fellow officers to take control of that scene and manage the resources. Uh, one of the greatest things for me, I found when I was young, I got promoted young, and so I was. Uh, I was, kind of, I was 23 when I got promoted to sergeant in the police department. Now, it used to be you weren't even eligible to take the exam until you were at least 25. So I got lucky. I got promoted young. But I found that the young officers would come to me and want to share stuff. And I learned early on, you got to listen. Because there's a lot of things being said that you don't hear. But you have to listen closely to what they're telling you. Because they are dealing with PTSD. You just don't realize it. And so there's a lot of hints along the way. Breadcrumbs, if you will, if you listen. I can tell you a number of stories and i won't get into it today of, of incidents where i found police officers that attempted suicide and because of things that when they show up for roll calling you know you get it in your gut it tells you that something's not right here go to the house and i find that they've taken an overdose of pills to end their life and so there's you deal with those things as they come up but you, you constantly remain focused you have troops men and women that are counting with you so you, do, you compartmentalize that and get back to do your job
0: uh, I have no other comments except to say thank you to the panelists. Give them a big round of applause. Great job, gentlemen. This has been Beyond the Call, on the scene, at the 16th Annual Police Officers Credit Union Conference. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, please go to your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, and many others. You can also view past episodes on our binge channel. Please rate and share these episodes. And as always, go to our sponsors page, nationalpolicecu.com to listen to episodes, as well as to make suggestions on future guests. Thank you, and stay safe out there.